thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise. Examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues, Hammond.Institute. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. St. Louis author James Rollins just keeps cranking out novels, many of them bestsellers. Rollins grew up in Baldwin and went to Mizzou and its renowned veterinary school. Then he turned to writing. He's now promoting his 34th book and is already working on his 35th. His latest thriller is titled Crucible. It revolves around some ancient witchcraft history and modern technology, specifically AI, artificial intelligence. You may love Siri, but Rollins told me in a recent interview, the future of AI can be scary, as he makes very clear in Crucible. Well, doing the research frightened me. And as a novelist, that's one way I get to sort of work through some of my fears is put it out on paper, uh, try to make sense of it, you know, try to, if I can, craft a happy ending, uh, find some, you know, path through what is, uh, what's coming next. And uh, so, you know, obviously I want to make a roller coaster ride. I want to entertain my readers. I want them turning pages late in the night. But, you know, hopefully at the end, you know, when we've read through the what's true, what's not section at the end of my novel where I pull aside the curtain and let you know where everything came from, leaving a few breadcrumbs to follow if you like, that hopefully, you know, you're left with something to think about. Where are we in this world of artificial intelligence, do you think? Well, it's, we're right at the cusp of a very scary time in humanity. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book now. Uh, I was planning on doing an AI book, but I was waiting for that right story, waiting, you know, letting it gel and germinate a little bit. Until I started doing some in-depth research and I began to talk to and accumulate about two dozen AI researchers that were willing to talk to me either by phone or by email. And even talking to them, finding out you know how unsure and unsettled they are about where AI is headed. Because right now, AI already is deeply integrated in our lives. It's what's called narrow AI in that it's, it's, it's just a rudimentary form of AI. You know, it's that Siri in your pocket, that's Alexa on your countertop. You know, that's the next stage when we see driving cars are gonna be run by AI. But we're talking about the next stage, what's coming next. And that is what's spooking a lot of the AI researchers. And they spooked me enough that my final question to a lot, the lot of them was, well, when do you think we're going to cross that threshold mm-hmm. where we actually develop an intelligence that's self-aware, that's, that is as intelligent as we are, if not superior in intelligence? And so I did a straw poll among these two dozen researchers, and the average was anywhere between five years and 15 years from now, which is disconcerting enough because that's you know within our lifetime. That's not you know far into the future. This isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger going back to save Sarah Connor type of story. Mm-hmm. This is right from where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. But two of the researchers told me this. They said, Jim, we believe that we're already there. You know, we've got our ear to the third rail of AI research, and it's rumbling. And it's rumbling in a manner that could only make that sound if somebody was testing a self-aware AI. And they showed me other proof, proof that's in the book, proof that I had changed some names to protect against slander, but it's there. And another proof that was almost beyond my ability to comprehend because it was very technical. But they were convinced that somebody already is testing this. So this isn't uh, future tech. This is you know just around the corner, if not already here. They believe that people were prepping for the announcement within the next 8 to 12 months. So that's where we're at. And it's going to be a pivotal change in how we view us and the world because this is the first time we're talking about sharing our planet with an intelligence that's, that's 
equal, if not superior to our own. Well, what, what form would that take then? I mean, your, your characters deal through computers uh, in, in your book. Uh, a computer doesn't seem to pose much of a threat. Or... It doesn't, but these, uh, what we're talking about is the next stage. As the founder of Skype once said, once we get to that stage, we're talking about a being, a creation that is literally beyond control because it's going to be so powerful. There's not any limitations. We're not going to be able to safely box it up. It's going to have access to spread through the through our the internet and the web, um, and it's going to be beyond our comprehension. And even now, the AI researchers kept referring to what's called an algorithmic black box. Even these narrow AIs, these these rudimentary AIs. These researchers will put in data into this black box, and an answer or inference will come out the other side. But they can't tell you how A led to B. They can't tell you that the the intellectual or thought process or algorithmic route that that AI came to that conclusion. That is uh, it's still a black hole. Uh, DARPA, the Defense Department's Research and Development Agency, just spent six point five million dollars to. Oregon University specifically to try to shine a light in that block, black box. Or even now, as rudimentary form, we really don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And yet still, that's not enough to make people be cautious. You know, every government is pursuing this. Every country is pursuing this. You know, Stephen Hawking, the physicist, said that you know, when we get to this moment, it's going to mark potentially the end of humanity. Uh, Elon Musk says it'll lead to World War III. Vladimir Putin said that, you know, whoever controls this tech will control the world. Mm-hmm. So just as... Uh, for the sake of our own security, uh, militarily, financially, everybody's after that that golden ring, and they're they're hell bent towards that goal to the point they're discounting safeguards. And uh, so, my next question to a lot of these AI researchers: Well, what can we do? You know, what if this is truly where we're heading to, if not already here? What is? How can we protect ourselves? What can we do to avoid that end of humanity that Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking seem to believe is where we're headed? And their answer was, well, we need to construct an AI that is friendly, an AI that is empathetic to us, sympathetic to us, one that has a moral compass. And again, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of a computer. I'm thinking of my, you know, my my iMac at home. I I don't believe it has a moral compass. So I said, well, how do you? How do you build a moral compass into a computer? And they told me. They said, well, this is what IBM is doing. This is what Google is doing. So there are little corners of, the, of this uh, chase towards that golden ring that are pursuing these little, the harder path, the more expensive path to try to find that path to a friendly AI. And in my book, that's what you what I use. You know, I, you, I introduce a rudimentary AI in this book called Eve. Uh, she's very crude at the beginning of the book, and over the course of the book, uh, her young researcher that is trying to sculpt her towards the correct path is using techniques I did not make up. These are pa- these are techniques I learned from those AI researchers. Yeah, these are, that's the essence of your book. And, yes. and given what you've just said, it, it's the programmer who is going to determine what the AI is going to of course, uh, wind we are, up doing. We're the, the gods of this future creation, and the question becomes a matter of you know nature versus nurture. You know, how much of who we are is our genetic code and how much of who are who we are is uh, how we're raised. And the same will come true for this developing AI. How, you know, how much to build a friendly AI, what do you need to change the code to make them friendly? Mm-hmm. Well, that's part of the equation. The other part of the equation is how do you raise that AI as it becomes self-aware? It's like raising a child. If you abuse it, you might end up with a, a 
something nasty. Mm-hmm. If you if you raise it in a proper manner, you may end up with somebody that can be our avatar or champion against that future moment where maybe a malignant AI rises, at least we'll have somebody that can potentially fight that. Mm-hmm. We can't give too much detail of your book because that would be a, too much of a spoiler. We don't want to ruin anything. But one of the things I would like to point out is the fact that women play uh, a, a really an integral role in this for, for good and for bad. And of course, Eve being the, the avatar sure. uh, here. Uh, was that intentional? It was. You know, the beginning of the book uh, goes back to mysteries, tracing back to the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, it'd, be long, it'd be hard for me to explain why. So, the, you know, by the book, you'll find out. But, uh, you know, back in the past, women that dared to question the natural order of the world, those that were, you know, practicing pagan rites of, of experimenting with herbs and, and plants to heal, oftentimes, uh, you know, those in power are usually, they're the men in the church at that time, back in the mid-1400s. They didn't like that. So they... Uh, they uh, declared them witches and found a way to eliminate them. And over the course of time, uh, that's not much changed. You know, even today, we might not be burning witches, but when we have women today that are exploring, questioning the natural world, specifically women scientists, uh, they're still at a disadvantage. They're still, in their own way, persecuted. Uh, between sexism, between lower pay, between their research being denigrated and oftentimes overwritten by a male colleague, it still is a hard path. So if, if there's other, you know, one of the goal of writing this book is, you know, to potentially, you know, encourage those young women out there that might, per, you know, want to pursue the STEM sciences, the STEM fields, uh, is to, uh, you know, shine a light on the fact that this is a problem still. Yeah. Well, you talk about the STEM fields. That's an issue, uh, a separate issue in the sense that in our country today, um, we talk about it a lot, but not many people are going into the field, not as many as are needed. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, information is power. Mm. And when it comes to the STEM, that's where we're, you know, there's a huge, you know, we're seeing China putting a lot of effort. We're seeing Russia putting a lot of effort into bringing a new generation of, of scientists and researchers, you know, and, and we're losing ground. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is disastrous, going to be disastrous for us. Mm-hmm. Going back to the artificial intelligence, in, in your book, you make reference to two types, there's AGI and ASI. What, what is the difference? Well, right now, as I mentioned, what's in our pockets with Siri is, is what's called a narrow AI. It's still pretty crude. The next stage when we get to become, when AI becomes self-aware and is to, is at the level of our intel- intelligence, it's called artificial general intelligence is the term AI researchers use. That's when we have an AI as smart as we are. But that AGI, as most AI researchers will admit, won't stay in AGI for very long. It's going to be very busy. It's going to look for ways to improve itself. And in doing so, it's going to become smarter very quickly. And literally, they were saying it could take hours. It could, if, if worst case scenario, maybe weeks. It will go from an AGI to an ASI. An ASI is an artificial super intelligence, where now we're talking about something that is thinking at speeds uh, that are beyond our comprehension. Yeah, you used speed terms that I've never heard before in your book, that, that how pretty, quickly things move. It is move. pretty scary. I mean, I, I use in, in the book the example of, uh, of AlphaGo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Go is an ancient Chinese game. It's, it's literally, and I'm not exaggerating, trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of times harder than chess. And the estimate was that it would take, uh, you know, f- at least a decade for an AI to become... Uh, a th- Powerful enough to beat the human grandmaster at the at the Chinese game of Go, 
because it is so complicated. And, you know, already, you know, back a few years ago, we had an AI that could beat the human grandmaster at chess. Mm -hmm. We had Watson was able to beat the Jeopardy champion. And then Google's DeepMind program uh, developed an, an AI called AlphaGo, specifically designed to play that game. And lo and behold, AlphaGo beat the human grandmaster at Go a full decade before they thought that was possible. But Google was not satisfied with that result, so they decided to improve AlphaGo, and they created the younger brother of AlphaGo called AlphaGo Zero. Mm -hmm. In three days, they basically just said, okay, AlphaGo Zero, here are the rules of Go. Now go play it for a while, and we'll get back to you. Mm -hmm. Three days later, they went back to AlphaGo, and they challenged AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero, with the uh, human grandmaster. So in three days, this AlphaGo Zero was able to beat the human grandmaster at, at Go, and then they challenge AlphaGo Zero to challenge its bigger brother, the original version AlphaGo, against to play this game. And 100 games out of 100 games, AlphaGo Zero beat its bigger brother. Mm -hmm. So in three days, it became that proficient. And that was a year and a half ago. And one of my AI back pocket researchers works at DeepMind. And they said, oh, that's, we're well past that. So that give you some indication of how yeah. how quickly we're accelerating in our AI research. You, you hear people from time to time talking about the potential for artificial intelligence to reach a point at some point at which they find we, humans, are useless to them, and they'll just kind of do away with us. Do your researchers talk about that? And not just useless, but a threat, mm -hmm. is that when this ASI comes on onto the field, whether it's now or whether it's in 8 to 12 months from now or 5 to 15 years from now, it's going to be literally immortal. It's a silicon intelligence. As long as it has you know access to resources and power, it's probably, it can live forever. It can multiply itself. Right now, they even have AIs that are designing other AIs, which to me itself is creepy. Yeah. And uh, it's not going to look at just threats now. It's not going to look at you and I and go, well, are you a threat to me? They're going to look at, you know, are these you know, apes that walk amongst me, uh, are they going to be a problem 10 years from now, a century from now, or even a millennia from now? They're looking at threats way down the pipe because they, they anticipate being there. And so they're going to sort of judge and extrapolate, you know, when are we going to become competitors for resources? When are we going to maybe try to stop that ASI? And it may set things in motion that are, you know, decades, if not centuries long, to make sure that if that ever arises, it's in the position to be able to get rid of us. That is scary stuff when you stop to think about it and think that it is the potential is, is, is there. And it is. I mean, this sounds like a lot of science fiction, but this is worrying AI researchers, and it's, it's a problem that we, all, we may all be facing in the very near future. Yeah. Another fascinating part of your book was uh, the segments dealing with the, with the brain yes. and brain mapping and some of the things the brain could be capable of doing, among other things, being able to, through the MRI press process, extract pictures of what the person in a coma, for instance, is right. thinking. And that's not, that's not fiction. That is right mm -hmm. from science today, where they have now using functional MRIs, ones that are tuned to, to read the bl blood flow through a brain in great detail. They're able to look at that map and interpolate and, and, and figure out pictures from that. So they're now able to use that to, and they did that a study at a university where they had students in a room. They studied them looking at different pictures and then they went, put them in an MRI and had them think of that picture. And the, the AI that was interpre interpreting that data was able to then extract exactly what they were thinking, what they were picturing. And that's becoming more and more refined. Uh, 
There's a product called Neural Dust that sounds, again, like it's almost something science fiction, but they've already done uh, research with Neural Dust, which is a, even a finer way of looking at the way the brain uh, ticks and being able to pull information out of that. And uh, they've d finished research on rats and they're now going to human experimentation. So it's all everything in that book is, is factual. It's what's, what's actually going on in different research institutions. And just today I was reading in the news that, you know, they've, they've fine-tuned enough that they're able to now uh, expand that to potentially people that can't communicate, being able to hook them up to advice and read their thoughts enough to communicate just via thought. Well, that uh, Stephen Hawking, for instance, that, that would be an interesting uh, capability where he's still around. Exactly. Yeah, right. You're not very far from where you grew up. and uh, no, I'm not. Not very far from where you went to school. Tell me something about the evolution from veterinary school and uh, at Mizzou to uh, a best-selling novelist. Well, it was, a, it was a different path. You know, I, I'm still... During my book talks, I always pause and I'll ask, is there any other veterinarians in the audience that are that are that want to write and do want to write thrillers? Because I think at this point I'm the only veterinarian that writes thrillers. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of lawyers write, you know, become novelists, and that occasional doctor becomes novelist. Because I think mostly they don't like their job. I think veterinarians like their job, and so we don't wander too far astray. Uh, but for me, you know, I always wanted to be a vet growing up. You know, from third grade, I got that assignment that you always get in third grade. You know, go home, write an essay on what you want to be when you grow up, and. I remember the third grade version of myself sitting at my dad's white sheet of paper in front of me ready to fill out that essay. Knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. Only problem, didn't know how to spell it. So I thought I could put fireman, doctor, finish that little few paragraphs and go out and play. But the one thing that third graders hate to do, I actually went to, got the dictionary and looked it up because I was that determined from third grade to be a vet. But that was on one half of my brain, you know, loves animals, loves medicine, loves science. The other half of my brain, a little more twisted, a little weirder. You know, I was raised with three brothers and three sisters. We were raised Polish, Roman Catholic, and... I think my, you know, to keep the Polish flag in your window, you had to have at least six kids. <laughs> my mom had a spare. <laughs> but they were my early audience. You know, I loved spinning stories, telling, you know, telling wild stories and tales. And, if, you know, if tears were involved, all the better. And, you know, I call it storytelling. My mom called it lying. Hmm. Uh, but that was the other half of my brain. And I kept reading, you know, throughout my, uh, even today, I mean, it's still read. But it's like throwing gasoline on that, that corner of my brain. And so... Even though I knew I wanted to be a vet, I kept reading, and that kept, you know, that desire to maybe walk into a bookstore one day and see my book on a shelf. And, you know, began writing some short fiction that didn't mm -hmm. sell. Four years I tried to write short fiction. None of, nothing sold. But based on that great success, I decided to write my first novel. And uh, it got a few rejections, but eventually it sold also. And then uh, one book became another, and Eventually, here I am. What, 30 of them now? Is that 34 weird? books. 30, 34 books. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that the essay you wrote in the third grade became a bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the first day of vet school, uh, the entering class is seated, and uh, the dean walks in and gives an introductory speech to the entering class, and he ends uh, that lecture with the chilling words you probably remember from school, too, is, you know, take out a sheet of paper, you're having your first pop quiz. Mm -hmm. It's a one-question quiz. If you get it wrong, we're kicking you out of vet school. I write down the word veterinarian. So from third grade, I was ready for that question. Not everybody else was. Well, we should point out, too, as our, our time is winding down, but uh, you do bring an animal into, uh, into Crucible uh, in, in, in a do. supporting role. Kind of cute. Exactly. I mean, I, at one point I got a question from a fan, and I said, hey, Jim, you know, write about here in your, you know, arc of your books, all of a sudden all of your 
main characters sort of had animal sidekicks or animals played a big role in your story. You know, in Amazonia, you had a, an orphan jaguar club, cub that played a big role. Here you have a Western Mountain Grill. On this one, there's a search and rescue dog or a military uh, war dog. You know, what's up? Why, you know, prior to that, nobody had pets. Why? Mm-hmm. And I realized that just, and this again is sort of why writers are a bit naked on the page. I had to go back and think, well, why is that? And I looked back and I realized, oh, that's, that's when I finally gave up writing because I was still writing while I had my 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 clinic and mm-hmm. so when I finally sort of weaned myself off the clinic and was writing full time was when animals started creeping mm-hmm. into my writing is that that one side of my brain began seeping into the other side of the brain because I wasn't getting any type of outlet from from working at the clinic on a daily basis mm-hmm. do you ever miss that do you miss having that kind of a life you know I still do some some volunteer work I haven't given it up totally uh, I can mm-hmm. still neuter a cat in under 30 seconds if, if need be uh, I work with a group that traps feral cats in the Sacramento Valley. They bring them to the shelter. I spend one Sunday for eight hours spaying and neutering them. So now all I do with my veterinary degree is just m- remove genitalia, but, you know, it's, it's a hobby. So, <laughs> so I, keep my, I keep my toe in the water. You mentioned uh, you got uh, saw something in the paper that uh, kind of triggered an idea. Do you get a lot of your ideas from the news? I do. I mean, I always got my antenna up and because I'm, I'm trying to be as topical as I can so that the story has a little resonance beyond just the, the roller coaster ride of an adventure. So I'm always looking for, you know, either historical mystery that might be fun to, to play with in a novel, or I'm looking for that science that makes me go, what if, where is that headed? Because uh, and, and I, whenever I talk to these scientists, uh, I, I always want to be as up to the moment as I can, because when I finish a book, oftentimes there's a lag period of months, if mm-hmm. not almost a year before the book comes out, and science changes rapidly. So I, I want to be as current as I can. So whenever I'm talking to these scientists, you know, I'm telling them, you know, don't tell me what you wrote in a paper, you know, three months ago. Tell me, you know, look over your shoulder, what's on your lab table or your mm-hmm. workspace today, because that's what I need to know if I'm going to put it in the book. What's the next one? Next one deals with a mystery uh, and some some surprising information about uh, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, for the long, if you were in the 18th century, you would have thought Troy, the city of Troy, was was mythological, was legendary, and it wasn't until the 19th century when a young amateur archaeologist discovered the the walls of this uh, what appeared to be Troy, and over decades later was proven to be Troy. So this next book, you're going to find out how much else of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the story of gods and monsters, blessings and curses, is actually true. You like to do that, don't you, to look back at history and then bring it, bring it forward? I do, because I think there's always lessons in history, you yeah. know, and so they, you know, and here we have the lesson of the fact that, you know, in the past, you know, women were being persecuted and they're being persecuted today. In the past, uh, you know, women, I mean, witches were not really persecuted by the Catholic faith for the longest period of time. It was only until after the publication of a certain book called the Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of Witches, that there's a great pogrom against uh, heretics and witches across Europe. And the only reason that book became an issue and and lit that fire was it coincided with the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. If it was the after the Bible, one of the first mass-produced books out there, so it was widely distributed. This witch hunter's Bible, and it was considered to be the book that that triggered the great uh, burning of witches across Europe and eventually here in Salem. And so here, back in the past, you know, they were. I'm sure when Gutenberg had invented the printing press, everybody was going, oh, it'll be a great boon for humanity. It will bring people closer. Knowledge will be easily spread. And what did we use it for? You know, burn all witches. Hmm. And look at the internet. You know, internet was like, oh, it will be a great boon to humanity. It will bring the world closer. You know, knowledge will be easily accessible. And look what it's become. Hmm. 
And so I'm just extrapolating. Well, you know, everybody, the, the Ray Kurzweil uh, is one of the, the gentlemen that uh, sort of invented this idea of the singularity, this moment where we're going to have an AI on our planet. He believes it will be a great boon to humanity. It will bring us closer. Information will be greatly, you know, available. But, you know, let's look at history and how that, how sometimes tech is, is not uh, the boon that we think it might be. Careful what you wish for. Exactly. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. Good luck with it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.